Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Larry was a tall, skinny college kid. Long hair, a nice smile on his face. Something told me that I like this guy. I'm going to need this guy. You know, he was different, right? I was impressed that, you know, I knew a college kid and he's becoming a dentist, right? A legitimate guy like that, a professional. You know, he went to school the presidents went to. Passed with A's. Same time, fucking handling a fucking drug business that fucking earned seven fifty a month. That was like two million today, and getting straight A's without trying. You know, like he was bored. Now, who does that, right? Who could do that? You tell me. One guy that could do that. When someone thinks about Philly, usually the first thing that comes to mind is who makes the best cheesesteak. Then it's the Eagles, Wawa, the Italian Stallion, Rocky Balboa, and maybe the fact that Philly was the birthplace of American democracy. But for a few years in the early 80s, Philadelphia's greatest hits were upstaged by a story you've probably never heard of. It's the story of an Ivy League educated dentist who orchestrated one of the wildest criminal conspiracies in American history. Dentist Lawrence Lavin pleaded guilty to running a $5 million a month cocaine ring that catered to lawyers, stockbrokers, and other professionals. You gotta understand the genius in Larry. Nobody was doing coke at this point. It was a rich man's high. He was a successful Philadelphia dentist, but an even more successful cocaine dealer. Look, he's a great salesman. He could sell dirt to a dead man. I said, you're sitting in this beautiful home. You've got a wife and a child and another one on the way. You've got millions of dollars in cash. What the fuck more do you need? Dr. Larry Lavin. His story was a media sensation when it occurred. And it's no mystery why the headlines were so captivating to people. Ivy League educated dentist runs largest cocaine ring ever discovered in Philadelphia. They called it the Yuppie Conspiracy. It spanned 14 states and three countries from 1978 to 84, delivering over 100 pounds of cocaine a month and grossing about $190 million a year in today's money. When you hear those figures, 
You don't picture a friendly guy in a polo asking you how often you floss. But that's exactly who was behind all of this. So why did he do it? How did he do it? Who is he, really? To answer these questions, you'll need to hear from a lot of different people. And we will. But there's only one guy who can bring you inside the mind of a cocaine-dealing dentist. And his name is Larry Lavin. It's funny, even when you're running something like that, you just don't think of yourself as a kingpin. I just want enough money to pay for dental school. And then all of a sudden it snowballed into something else. Welcome to Wolves Among Us, Season 1, The Larry Lavin Story. My name is Steve Seidel. I grew up in Philly and first heard about Larry Lavin over 20 years ago from my college roommate, Kelly Reed. Kelly is the son of an FBI agent named Chuck Reed. We'll get to him later, but suffice it to say that without Chuck Reed, we probably wouldn't know about the Larry Lavin story. I'll never forget when Kelly told me about the Philadelphia-based cocaine-dealing dentist. I was instantly captivated, and as I delved deeper into his story, I became obsessed with learning more about who this guy really was and why someone who seemingly had it all would get involved in a multi-million dollar crime ring in the first place. And for that, I knew I would have to go straight to the man who lived it, Dr. Larry Lavin himself. I first went to meet Larry at his house outside of Tampa, Florida. He greeted me wearing a black University of Pennsylvania t-shirt blue jeans, and no shoes. Do you want any water or anything? Yeah. Far left cabinets, some glasses and stuff. I'm sorry, actually, just give me one second. I'm sorry. This is a plumber that's at work right now. Hey, Bill? Hey, Larry, what's up, buddy? Good. We're doing a podcast at my house, so I'm going to have to be quick. But He's a lanky guy with a cool, calm demeanor. And the baby-faced dentist with floppy brown hair I'd seen in photographs now had a white beard, neatly trimmed, and short white hair. We sat down in his living room, and Larry started telling me his story, from the top. The Larry Lavin story doesn't begin in Philadelphia. It begins in Haverhill, Massachusetts, a small manufacturing town on the Merrimack River, about 35 miles north of Boston. Lavin was a prominent name around Haverhill, but by the time Larry was coming of age, his family had fallen on hard times. Larry was the youngest of four and began working numerous odd jobs like delivering papers and painting houses to earn extra money. But whether it was bounce checks or not being admitted to the community pool, the Lavins struggled. Larry hopped between Catholic schools and public schools until one day he attracted the attention of a private boarding school near his hometown. Phillips Exeter Academy, incorporated in 1781, is today recognized as one of the country's leading prep schools. Phillips Exeter has a great endowment, so they give a lot of scholarships. Yeah, I went up and had this interview, and they pretty much offered me a full boat, other than I'd be required to uh, work these student jobs to help pay back for it. And there's other costs there, like, you know, laundry, and, you know, they have a really nice little dining area where you could go and buy, like, an omelet or something. I couldn't afford to do that, but all these other kids would eat there every day. Phillips Exeter Academy, one of the most elite boarding schools in the United States. 
For the last two and a half centuries, the school has been alma mater to Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, countless congressmen, senators, CEOs, and the United States president. You gotta realize you're with some of the richest people in the world, but yet they're also extremely driven. You know, you get up and go to class in the middle of this snowy atmosphere, you gotta wear a suit coat and tie, there's fireplaces in the classrooms. You go off and play sports, and their sports facilities were better than anything I've ever seen in any Ivy League college. I mean, we had two full hockey rings, you know, Olympic pools, maybe 40 playing fields. They had 40 tennis courts. They had squash courts, all this type of stuff. And, uh, you know, Exeter has over a billion dollars in endowment, which outdoes many colleges. And it's really marvelous. This was a foreign environment for Larry. The amenities, the kids, the culture. Larry was an outsider, and he was often reminded of that. One time I'm running to class, and they ring these bells that tell you that it's class time. And when the last bell rings, he closes the door. I'm 10 feet from that door. He can see me, he just closes the door. So, you know, you get written up for not making it to class that day. But he hands out the first test from there, and uh, he says, someone writes and spells the same way he speaks. There is no R in formula, you know. <laughs> you know, I be in New England, I put an R on every word that has an A at the end of it. Larry might not have come from the same world as his fellow prep school students, but he was going to find a way to make friends, and he soon figured out how. Pranks. The kids at Exeter love pulling pranks on each other. You know, like filling someone's sock with shaving cream. Larry had a slightly different sense of humor. We have one kid here who's convinced, his parents has told him he's going to be president. There's no doubt about it. He never does anything without wearing a suit coat and tie. So we tell him, hey, you know, Christmas break's coming up and you know, you got to get ready for the fight with the dorm next door. So that night, there's like 20 of us in on this joke. We're making all this noise in the hallway like there's a big fight going on. And he's over under his desk with a suit coat and tie on. And someone fake hits me on my head and I lay down on the floor and blood splats out, it's ketchup, you know, and they drag me out of the room. And, uh, and we all laugh and, and go to bed and think it's funny, right? Boom, 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 there's the knock on the door and it's the head guy for the faculty from my dorm. He's going, Lavin, you fucking did it again. That kid thinks you're dead, you know? <laughs> and he tells me he jumped out his window onto the roof in the snow went to a payphone and called the school. And, and he says, you can't be doing this to people, you know. <laughs> but Larry didn't only pretend to break the rules. He did it for real. And he did it masterfully. One of my friends who was fairly affluent would supply the pot, and I supplied the room for us to get high. And uh, back in those days, everyone hung tapestries on your walls. It was just a thing you did to make your room look cool. And so I hung them so that they kind of made like a ductwork to the window and had a fan. The duct that Larry created funneled pot smoke directly out of the window so that it wouldn't stink up his room or the dormitory. He also devised an alarm system to warn him in case any trouble was headed his direction. Larry had a deal with a student who lived next door to the headmaster that if the headmaster left his apartment, he would transmit a beeping noise, which would play through the speakers in Larry's pot den. The system worked well, but it wasn't foolproof. Out of all the lessons Larry learned at Exeter, one that would follow him throughout his life was that there's always a blind spot. There's always something out of your control, a variable you don't account for. This whole idea of like people in authority and 
They could never figure out what you're really doing is what our mind's thinking. You know, the same thing I thought later on. No, they'll never catch you. You know, they're just not smart enough to. Little did I know. It started with a relatively harmless Exeter tradition. There was a secret set of keys passed down every year from the outgoing senior class to the rising senior class. Larry was in possession of those keys his senior year and had recently chosen his successor. One of the Vanderbilts went there, really cool kid, and I'm passing them to him. It's like this ceremony, you know, here, you're the anointed one, you know, have fun. You gotta understand, Exeter has all these tunnels underneath back that they used to use, and these keys got you in there. So I could get anywhere in the school, and we used to go down and take food out of the kitchen, like those cereal boxes and whatnot. So unbeknownst to me, while I'm working at the library, he's gone down there, and he's taken all this food and he's put it in the middle of my room as like a present, you know? And apparently the headmaster goes around at like eight o'clock at night, he opens the door and he sees this big thing of food and it's flipping him out and he goes over and opens the closet and sees, you know, there's no clothes in there and there's black lights and this crazy web in and there's a flint along the walls where you can light matches and a big water pipe in the middle of the thing, you know? And uh, so that turned out to be uh, my downfall. Larry blew it, and it wasn't even the pot then that got him caught. It was the pile of snacks left in his room as a thank you gift. Four years on scholarship at America's top prep school, down the drain. I certainly should have worried about getting kicked out of Exeter, but unfortunately I didn't. I've always had this problem with uh, trying to assess the risk versus reward ratio, I guess. Most people balance that maybe better than I do. To make matters worse, Larry had already been accepted to college, the University of Pennsylvania, one of the top institutions in the world. But seeing as he was officially expelled from Exeter and would not receive a high school diploma, an Ivy League future seemed out of reach. He would have to pack his bags, live with his parents, and try to enroll in Haverhill High to repeat his senior year. But that's not what happened. Larry was about to flaunt perhaps his greatest gift, bullshitting his way out of trouble. I was very good at talking with people, and it doesn't really matter who they are. I'll find a way to talk to them and find something that we have in common. A typical example is I got stopped once at 3 o'clock in the morning coming back for some job, and it was a, a cop that's got me doing 40 in a 35-mile-an-hour zone or something ridiculous. And I hear him yell, license and registration with a real heavy New York accent. And I said, oh my God, a goddamn Yankee fan. <laughs> and hearing my accent, I said, a goddamn Red Sox fan. And we went at it just fooling around. He just let me go after that. Well, the cop in this scenario was the Dean of Admissions, a guy named James Nolan. Larry met with Nolan following his expulsion from Exeter. And I guess that meeting went pretty well. And he says to me, Larry, Penn's policy with this is usually they ask you to take a year off and get your life together. I don't want to do that with you. So you know what? I'll see you in September and don't worry about it. Larry, you're in. Don't worry about all this stuff. Take your tie off, put your feet up. So in September of 1973, I leave Massachusetts for Philadelphia. And I get to Penn and I'm put in a dorm in what they call the quadrangle. But my roommate walks in, and within 10 minutes, we're showing each other what type of pot we have, and we realize that we're going to get along pretty well. Larry had made it to the Ivy League, and he was about to discover a new type of mischief that would define the rest of his life.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a measure of how widely pot has spread in recent years that well over a million of America's college students now use the drug. And in addition to them are thousands of teenagers, many of them from prosperous middle-class homes. In my day, I went to college starting in 1969 and even before that in high school, everybody used drugs, even though our parents didn't know. And it was kind of uh, comical, you know, how out of touch our parents were with the reality of our world. I mean, it was like they came from a different planet. <laughs> That's author Mark Bowden. Bowden has written several best-selling books, including Black Hawk Down, which was adapted into an Academy Award-winning film. But before all that, he wrote a book called Dr. Dealer, and it was about Larry Lavin. He knows quite a bit about Larry's story, and he also knows a lot about what it was like to be in college in the late 60s and early 70s. This was during the era of, you know, when the Vietnam War was winding down and popular support for it was waning at the same time that there were more and more revelations of how much the government had lied to the American people about it. Students were protesting against the government, against the war. No more war. No more. This was a culture that was very lively. It was full of drug use. So it was a very compelling, widespread movement that swept up many, many young people, and myself included, during those years. To me, Larry, who is clearly a, an intelligent man, uh, has a particular kind of intelligence that excels in an academic environment. And we have all met students who seem to kind of effortlessly master the demands of, say, grade school, high school education, he managed to handle the increasingly rigorous academic demands without a tremendous amount of difficulty at the same time developing this reputation, which became legendary for being a party animal and someone who was out trying to have as much fun as he could possibly have. 
The hippies reject the values and conventions of modern society for a freer, more permissive way of life. They certainly make no secret about smoking pot, and in many countries they've been in the forefront of youthful campaigns to legalize it. It's just hard to explain how liberal it was. It's just crazy how much drugs were available at the time. I mean, I remember the head of Housen, who was a dean. This is a guy who comes to me and, you know, he wants to buy some pot or some acid or something. And uh, that was typical. My freshman year, there was a lot of acid. People, I remember at one point, we made a bet who could do acid 30 days in a row. Now, think about that. <laughs> so I was doing acid every day for 30 days, still going to class and still getting straight A's. Despite the freshman acid bender, by far the most ubiquitous and popular drug was pot. Everyone was smoking it. It was at parties, in the courtyard, it was in your back pocket. Everybody had a joint. People were driving around with vanfuls of, of pot. So everywhere I go, I mean, it'd be extreme exception if you were straight and didn't smoke pot or something. I mean, that'd be maybe one in 20 or 30 people. So in those days, Everyone was out to get pot somehow. So, you know, almost everyone who's smoking pot in a way is a minor dealer because you're getting it with your friends and you're splitting it up. And at the paternity that's rushing me, I meet someone who is like their pot dealer. And he takes me out to the suburbs of Philadelphia one day to meet the guy that gives him pot. And that guy is telling me how we just sent down to Penn some amount, like 20 or more pounds. And uh, he says the guy's having a hard time selling it. And I'm thinking, how can that be? You know, you got a perfect market here. you got 17,000 people. Probably every one of them wants to buy some pot, you know? So I said, give me his name. His name was Bob. So I go and see Bob. And I said, let me give this a try, you know? And I sell all that in two days. It's all gone, you know? <laughs> and, uh, they're just amazed. And that's what really got me going, is doing that. The big difference between Larry and a lot of the pot dealers who you would meet on college campuses in the 70s, is that most pot dealers were doing it as a social gesture. Nobody was in it for the money. Basically, if you managed to score a bunch of pot, you would share it with your friends and maybe charge them only enough to cover your costs. Larry had a much more business-like attitude toward the selling of drugs. So he started earning thousands of dollars as a fraternity brother while he was an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania. Larry approached pot dealing like any other job. Despite the rigorous demands of his Ivy League class load, he somehow found the time to do troubleshooting, fix inefficiencies, as well as specialize in customer service. He wasn't just doing it to make friends. He was doing it because he saw how much money he could make if he did it the right way. Once I start the pot business, it's kind of interesting how I organize it. First of all, you got to realize you're a student first, so you got all these other demands going on. Plus, you know, trying to date and have a social life, so you can only segment so much time to this. So you got to be fairly organized with it. And what I realized quickly was that it's relatively easy to recruit people. Everyone's looking for money or getting some pot or something like that. Plus, even people that didn't really need money but want the excitement part of it. So I developed a fairly large network of people a lot of who maybe went to Exeter with me, or maybe they might be someone at Penn whose brother's at another college or something. So I'm dealing mostly to college students around the East Coast and, you know, as far as like Syracuse, New York, places like that, Rochester. 
Something else that separated Larry from your average college pot dealer is that he didn't limit his customer base to other students. He set his sights on a much bigger market, starting with the streets of Philadelphia. In order to do that, he had to befriend people who might have been outside the comfort zone of most Penn students. But Larry had no concept of an outsider or stranger. Everyone was approachable, no matter who they were or where they came from. There were various points on the path of learning about Larry and what he had done that were really surprising to me. I think one of the big ones was Billy South Philly. Meeting Billy Motto, that opened up my eyes to just how serious Larry had dived into the criminal world in Philadelphia. Billy was used to those waters and he knew how to navigate them. And it was clear to me that Larry, in that aspect of his life, it was in way over his head. I remember Larry, he always had boat loafers on or sneaks, you know, with nice khakis or t-shirt. You know, he was just like a regular college kid. He didn't have that swagger about him, you know what I mean? That people may say I have, you know? He didn't have that. He was just a regular good kid. Like, you could have looked at him and said, the fuck's he doing in business, you know what I mean? About halfway through college, as Larry looked to expand his business, he set his sights on South Philly. He was introduced to a young dealer named Billy Motto, AKA Billy South Philly. When you grow up in South Philly, everybody gets like a nickname. You know, it was either your last name, your first name, or unless you did something weird. Like in South Philly, they get Frankie Nose, you know. You know, there was a million names. But the nickname started, that stuck, was because I guess Larry had other customers, other Billy customers. And he wrote this thing called, uh, you know, in his books where I guess he kept customers' names, was BSP, Billy South Philly. And it stuck. When Larry and Billy met, Billy had recently gotten out of rehab for heroin addiction. He was clean and did the last thing any reformed addict should do. He started dealing drugs. South Philly was a notorious hotbed for organized crime and Italian mafia figures. It was a territory that required some institutional knowledge. You know, I grew up in your product of your environment, I like to believe. And there were several characters in our lives, right? I saw a priest in my neighborhood that weren't only up and up. I saw cops trying to hit us in the fucking head. And I saw a guy on the corner with a black suit on. And everybody wanted his attention. And he would give me $20 to go buy a hoagie, you know? Who would you want to be like? Billy was already a fairly active pot dealer. But it was a constant hustle because some people didn't trust him. They thought he might relapse, steal money, cause problems. But not Larry. Two years out of rehab, I couldn't bar 500 on the street at that time. I was just getting my reputation back, you know. Here's a guy that trusted me. Larry became a brother to me. I didn't know a lot of smart people, like educated smart people. You know what I'm trying to say? You know, he could talk to anybody. Zillionaires to gangsters to regular guys. Billy and Larry were instant friends. And as far as business went... Larry needed someone to help transport and distribute large amounts of marijuana from his suppliers down in southern Florida. And that's exactly what Billy was interested in doing. 
drug smuggling has become a major growth industry. A multi-million dollar business involving private aircraft and speedboats, mafia connections and high-priced lawyers. I realized early on that the money's not in selling the pot, but it's in transporting and bringing it back. I kept saying, Larry, I need to go down here. I, you know, I want to bring it up. I want to bring it up. And he said to me one day, all right, look, I could send you down, but you got to split it when you get back. I said, all right, great. No worries. And I said, but wait a minute, Larry, there's one other problem. He said, what's that? I said, I ain't got 50000 Back again, the reason I'm telling the story is because I'm out of rehab two years, right? This guy gives me 50000 he knew that I had the power to take that money and never see him again. And he trusted me with 50, right? And his connection. And that was huge, right? Everybody in the world's like, fuck him, rob him, you know, 50,000. We never saw 50,000 in our life at this point. Back on campus, Larry was starting to lay the foundation of what he thought would be his grand exit from the drug trade. Larry was going to become a dentist. His plan was simple make enough money selling pot to pay for dental school, and then ride off into the sunset as a highly educated professional with a steady, legitimate job. I remember in my interview for, at dental school, the guy asked him why I want to be a dentist, and he says, I'm sure this is your fallback that you've applied to a bunch of med schools. I said, no, I haven't applied to any med schools. You know? And I said, I see a difference between being a doctor and being a dentist. Well, this is the wrong guy to say that. He was an oral surgeon, got pretty upset with me. But I'd say, I realize there's seriousness in dentistry, but it's still not life and death every minute. Larry was making enough money to pay for dental school and then some. And since he was running the business without any issues, he saw no reason to stop. But the downside of dealing pot would inevitably present itself. One of these kids takes some of this acid and he takes a Russian history book and lights it on fire. When the security guards come and grab him, he said he wanted to see the Starship Enterprise take off. He gives the name of the top five dealers on campus, and I'm one of them. And so this dean, who has actually bought things from me, okay, comes and tells me, listen, Larry, they're going to come search your guys' rooms, you know, and uh, we don't better let the police on campus, but we have to for this because it's got to be a PC alumni and all this. So I met my roommate and I cleaned up. We took two huge laundry bags to fill up with all our paraphernalia, you know, water pipes and scales and all this stuff. And we cleaned up the room and no one ever came to our room, but they did go to a girl's room and she opens the door and she's got a pound of Colombian pot on the floor. She's breaking up and in walks the security guard and a Philadelphia police. But what they did to her was suspend her for one semester. You know, there were no consequences for drug use at all in any way. At least that's how it worked inside the Ivy League bubble. But in the real world, there were real consequences. One of my guys goes down to Florida and he uh, goes to buy something and it wasn't any good. So he tries to sell it while he's down there and he sells it to a DEA agent and gets arrested. So when he shows up, I guess they open the doors of their van and, and pull out guns on him and he gets arrested. So I quickly get a lawyer for him and he's going to have to go to a halfway house for like 90 days. And, you know, it's not a bad thing, but that's the first run in. But it was funny, the lawyer kept telling me there's consequences. And so we always use that word when something happened. We said, there's going to be consequences. While they might not have been very serious, the consequences started piling up. Not long after the arrest in Florida, another of Larry's partners got busted transporting 200 pounds of pot on a train from Atlanta to Philly. And he wasn't even the only person on that train smuggling marijuana. 
there were two other guys doing the exact same thing. They didn't believe this at first. They were all smuggling pot back. In the baggage room, they had found three amounts of pot. And not until they opened them up and saw how different they looked did they realize that they had nothing to do with each other. So now i got to get a lawyer, you know, and spend this money. And uh, it's always a trip dealing with these lawyers. He says, you know, my charge is $50,000, and I, I pushed this briefcase over. And he says, what's in there? I said, $50,000. He said, how do you know what my fee was going to be? I said, in drug cases, it's always $50,000, you know. <laughs> For Larry, the once lucrative pot business screeched to a halt. All the money he'd been saving up was getting pushed back into the business. If it wasn't legal fees for his crew, it was buying back lost product or eating the losses of customers who owed him money. You know, again, when you're looking at losing thirty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, all of a sudden this is money that you felt you already had. It's like I always felt like I was trying to make up capital that I had at one point, and now I've lost it. But frankly, pot had become a huge pain in the ass, primarily because transporting it was so cumbersome and easy for cops to detect. It takes up a lot of physical space, and it stinks. Authorities were ramping up drug enforcement, and the risks of moving and selling pot were multiplying by the day. Maybe it was time to throw in the towel and focus on becoming a dentist. The predictable schedule, the steady income. After all, the pot dealing was a side hustle a means to an end. And dentistry was supposed to be that end. So it's interesting, at one point, I decided to go shopping at Sears for something in Upper Darby outside of Philadelphia, and I run into my friend. He's um, from the suburbs of Philadelphia, a very affluent family, and, and he's living with a woman who's from Miami. And he's trying to convince me that we really need to start selling cocaine because we can't really get the pot anymore. And his line is, why carry an elephant on your back when you put a mouse in your pocket? Coming up this season on Wolves Among Us, season one, the Larry Lavin story. Larry, in his own way, kind of stumbled into the cocaine trade. But it was amazing. I mean, the network was mind-boggling. Everybody wanted cocaine, and I mean everybody wanted cocaine. Illegal cocaine is coming into our country at alarming levels. They're all yuppie kids. They were, most of them were educated. Most of them were, you know, your next-door neighbor. It was very violent back then. So far, more than 100 people have been murdered and no one has gone to jail. I said, hey man, what's with the guns? I'm not here to rip you off. Drugs were never Larry's primary motivation for all this, understand. It was always money and risk. And I thought to myself, man, the hubris of this guy, I'm never gonna get caught. Yes, you are, the odds are against you. Thank you for listening to Wolves Among Us, a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Story created by Cadence 13, along with Matthew Hazara Davis and Steve Seidel. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge of Cadence 13. Co-written by Matthew Hazara Davis, Lloyd Lockridge, and Steve Seidel. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Narrated by me, Steve Seidel. Produced by Ian Mont and Margot Gray. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations, and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schupp, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, 
Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.